Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God the Father and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God, which we will consider today, is found recorded in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of St. John. There we read verses 19 and 20 as follows in Jesus' name. On the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were together behind locked doors because of their fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. These are the words. Heavenly Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, your fellow redeemed, those who were alive when it happened can probably tell you where they were, and what they were doing on December 7th, 1941. That's the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and the United States entered into World War II. And many also can well remember September 2nd, 1945 as the day when the Japanese signed the terms of surrender on a an American battleship in Tokyo Harbor, ending the war. Those days and events, much like 9-11-01 for our generation, are easily recalled because they're so important. And they're so important because war is so terrible. Peace is so precious. Peace is the reason that Easter is so important to us, for that's the day our Lord Jesus came forth living after three days in his tomb which he'd been placed, thereby sealing our peace with Almighty God. Today, let's consider Jesus' words of greeting to his disciples when he came to them on the evening of that first Easter. He said to them, and he says to each one of us, peace be with you. Peace is one of those things that we might easily take for granted. Those who have experienced the savagery and the fear of a battle probably appreciate peace more than those who've never known anything else. The disciples of Jesus that evening must have felt like war refugees. John says, on the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid, huddled together in what they were hoping was a secure, secret place. They must have also felt like war orphans. They'd come to depend on Jesus for so much. They felt safe when they were in his presence. They had seen most of the miracles he performed. One time when they were in danger during a fierce storm on the sea, they screamed to Jesus for his help. And then by his voice, he calmed the wind and the waves, and the danger passed. Another time when many of his followers were turning away from him, Jesus 
asked the disciples, will you also go away? Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter answered, you have the words of eternal life. And now he was gone from them, and they were left alone. Adding to their fear was the fact that he had been taken from them with such sudden violence. The Lord had appeared so passive that night in the garden when the authorities came to seize him. They'd probably heard about the terrible beatings and the torture he underwent after he had been taken away. And they knew that he had been crucified, nailed to a cross. He had always seemed invincible, but if his enemies could dispose of him so easily, what would be their fate? Surely they'd be coming for them next. And so that evening of our text, the disciples were hiding in fear and hoping that they would not be discovered. We could imagine that in addition to that natural fear, the disciples also may have experienced the pangs of a troubled conscience. They'd always been bold when they were with the Lord. One time when a Samaritan village refused to let Jesus and the disciples pass through their area, two of the disciples, James and John, asked Jesus if they should not at once call down a fire strike from heaven to obliterate that village. So when Jesus warned them that the day would come that they would all run away from him when he was arrested, all of them denied it. We'll never leave you, Lord, they all said, but they had. In fact, only one of them, John, found the courage to stand at the cross as Jesus was dying. All the others vanished into thin air. During that day of the first Easter, those strange reports had come to them in the upper room about Jesus' body now being missing from its grave. Some of the women had actually claimed that they saw him. The disciples dismissed these reports as so much nonsense. But what if it were true? They had not exactly distinguished themselves in the previous days. So how would they act if he had risen and would suddenly come to them? And that's exactly what he did, as John tells us, that as they hid there in the upper room, Jesus came and stood among them. What a glorious reunion. What an amazing sight to behold. Their friend and Lord, who was dead, was now alive. And he was standing right there in front of them, and he was about to speak. What would he say? Maybe they thought he might start by scolding them, even berating them. He could have said, you failed me. And they had. He could have reminded them how happy they were to be at his side during the good days when the crowds were large and enthusiastic. But when the bad things started to happen, they went away and stayed away. He could have reminded them of all that he had done for them and all the lessons that he had taught them. The disciples earlier confessed Jesus as Christ, 
the son of the living God, the promised Messiah, the Savior. But when the trouble started, they became faithless and afraid. Could we put ourselves in their shoes? Could it be that Jesus Christ would ever say to any one of us, you failed me? We know everything that he's done for us. We know that he kept every commandment every day in our place, kept the law perfectly, paying for our failure. We know that he then bore all of our guilt for all of our sins and that he died for all of that on the cross as our sinless replacement before God and that he rose again from the dead in destroying death itself on our behalf. Further, he's given us his means of grace, the word which we preach and hear, and the sacraments, so that by the Holy Spirit, we're brought to know him and to trust in him as our Savior, so that we can be saved from going to hell when we die. But have we always been so thankful for this news? Have we been good ambassadors for him in our lives? Have we always been happy to come together and be with him and worship him as we hear his word? Have we been generous, right-minded stewards of the wealth that he's given to us so that his church may be always supported and the gospel may be advanced in the world? If he were to accuse us of letting him down, I think we could only agree with him to our shame. There was Jesus now standing in the midst of his awestruck friends. What would he say to them? He could have said, I told you so. He had told them everything that was about to happen. Now that he would be seized and struck down, that they'd be left like forlorn sheep without a shepherd, that they would run away, but they wouldn't hear of such a thing. He had clearly told them he was going to rise again from the dead on the third day, but that didn't really register with them. And that's why when the women came with that good news that they had seen him, they, they scoffed at it. Could the Lord say that to us? I told you so. After all, we have all the prophecies that were spoken about him recorded in the Old Testament. And then we also have the New Testament, which shows how every single one of them came to pass. We have Jesus' own promise to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And we have his warning, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Yet we have to confess to our sorrow that often we've doubted his word. We've many times depended upon ourselves, upon our own strength, our efforts, our goodness, and then we fell down. We've many times uh, not listened or obeyed his word, but have been rather indifferent toward it. He's clearly told us everything we need to know for our salvation, but we've been reluctant to fully rely on that and timid about declaring it. There stood the living Lord right in the room, right in front of his disciples. What would he now say to them? 
He might have said, I'll give you one more chance. And they would have jumped at that. They would have immediately promised never to doubt him or forsake him ever again. They would have passed a unanimous resolution to do better next time. But they'd made bold promises to him before and they had not kept them. So if Jesus were to say to us, I'll give you one more chance, would we keep our promise to him? Could we resolve never again to doubt him, never again to turn away from him? Could we declare our intention never to be coward or intimidated by the world and deny him? We'd like to think so, but we know how easily we break our promises to each other. How could we keep our promise to him? When Jesus came to his frightened and anxious and guilt-ridden disciples that first Easter night, he didn't say any of those things. He did not scold them or remind them of their failure, nor did he even offer them one more chance to make good on the things that they'd vowed to him. No, when Jesus came, this is what he said. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. By those sweet words, Jesus calmed the turbulence roiling in their hearts, just as earlier he had calmed the wind and waves in a storm. Peace be with you. With those words, he bestowed on his friends the blessing of what he had just accomplished the days before. Now he was handing them the fruit of his anguish and his bloody death on the cross. He was declaring the war is ended. He turned away the Father's wrath against sinners. His resurrection proved it. He was personally consoling them with the words first given to the prophet Isaiah to speak. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. As evidence of this, Jesus showed them his battle scars, so they saw in his hands where the spikes had been driven, which held him to the cross, and they beheld the gash in his side where the spear had been thrust to finish him off. Peace had been established at a terrible cost. If earlier the disciples wondered about all this and felt a little worried and ashamed, now John says they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And that's meant for us. That's our joy. Jesus' message of peace is for our ears too. Every one of our failures, all of our acts of misdirected pride, all of our broken promises, they're all forgiven. Now each one of us has true and lasting peace with God. When people celebrated the end of World War I back in 1918, they declared that it had been the war to end all wars. We know, of course, there's been so much war and bloodshed since then. But as Christians, you and I have a lasting peace with God because the price of our salvation has been paid. We don't fear him. 
Rather, we may approach him as dear children approach their father who's taken us back to himself through the perfect life, the innocent death, and the rising again of his eternal son, our dear Savior. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forevermore. Amen.